Good morning, Pine Castle. How are you guys doing? Awesome, awesome. I had a pastor one time who would have referred to that performance as disgustingly talented. <laughs> disgustingly talented. Hope you have your, uh, your Bibles this morning. If you do, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're not going to read it just yet, but we will in a moment. Advent is a word that even the, the, the non-churched community is familiar with. We think about the advent of the internet. We think about uh, the advent of the mobile phone or uh, the advent of penicillin and antibiotics and what they allow for, these, these small miracles in a way that don't really measure up to the advent that we celebrate. And Advent is really about expectancy. More than, than anything else, I would argue that that's kind of the whole point. And, and the song that, that we're looking at today, which uh, Bruce so marvelously performed a moment ago, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom Captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear powerful words. And what's interesting, when you read the, the lyrics of this hymn, every verse is really the exact same thing. The second verse, the third verse, the fourth verse, they all call for Christ to appear. And each verse just uses a different name that was given in one of the prophecies from the Old Testament. And today, especially, we're going to be talking about the prophecy that we read in Isaiah about Emmanuel, which Matthew is very kind to translate for us. And he says, God with us. But today, I want to talk to you about something that even Isaiah himself didn't know. And I'm going to show you in Scripture how we know that Isaiah didn't know. He didn't know the extent of what God with us really meant. And in Ephesians, we get to, to hear from Paul as he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And one of the things that's interesting about Paul, he, uh, he kind of talks about the church, and then he stops. Right here in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and he goes on this sort of autobiographical tangent and some may call it ADD. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I don't think it was ADD. I think the Holy Spirit wanted us to get a glimpse inside the mind of Paul and see what made this apostle tick. And in the first verse, before we read the text, in the first verse, Paul opens by saying, and I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, you could argue he was actually a prisoner of Nero because he was in prison at the hand of Nero at the time of writing this text. But Paul didn't see it that way. Paul lived his entire life, after Acts 9 anyway, with Christ at the center. Paul was Christocentric, everything. No matter what he was in, no matter what circumstances he was faced with, he knew that it was all for Christ. So, as we read our text, starting here in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is going to talk 
about the mystery. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light, which is the administration of the mystery, that word again, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. That word mystery, my favorite word in the Bible, In the Koine Greek that this text was written in that we just read from, the word is mysterion. It means something which has been hidden for generations but has now been made known. For years, for centuries, God was saying, not yet, not yet, not yet, and then bam, now, everything made known. But Paul doesn't define it here in Ephesians. He actually defines it in Colossians. And we're not going to jump to Colossians just yet. Because I want you to experience this mysterion firsthand. So I'm going to read you a paragraph. And I want you to tell me if it made any sense at all. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problem. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor, but if things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. Raise your hand if that made no sense whatsoever. It was beautifully written. It really is. It's beautiful, but you want to know what it's about. Because the reason that doesn't make any sense is because it's a paragraph without a subject. It's this flowery, beautiful language, but we don't know what it's talking about. And so I'm going to tell you what it's talking about. And then I'm going to read it again. Okay? Because I want you to experience this thing, which is now going to be revealed to you as I read this paragraph one more time. I want you to imagine a kite, flying a kite. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. Probably shouldn't run around in traffic. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but is easy to learn. 
<laughs> Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful complications are minimal, birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs lots of room to fly a kite. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor, but if things break loose from it, you'll never get a second chance as it vanishes. Isn't it powerful what a subject can do? Point number one, a life without a subject doesn't make sense. A life with a subject doesn't make any sense. Which is all well and good, but I haven't told you the subject yet. We're, we're still wondering what this, this mystery is, and I'm going to set it up for you. Why doesn't Paul define it in Ephesians? Well, in the text we were reading, Paul specifically says the mystery which I have wrote about previously. But if you look at the first two chapters of Ephesians, he also has not defined it in Ephesians. You see, the letters that Paul was writing to the church at this time got passed around. The, the church at Ephesus didn't just read Ephesians, and that's all they got. The other churches, once they got their letter, they would copy it down, they would store it, and then they would share it with their brothers and sisters. So a lot of historians, and I mean, even reading the text, it kind of makes sense that, well, the church at Ephesus probably got Colossians first. It stands to reason that since they were written at roughly the same time, maybe the church at Colossae read their letter and passed it around. And so when the Ephesians get the letter from Paul, they already know what the mystery is because they've read it before. Now, it's easy for us not to think of that because in our Bible, Ephesians comes before Colossians, but how many of you know the Bible isn't arranged specifically in chronological order? It's arranged in the, the, by the divine wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And so we get to find out here in Colossians what that mystery is. I said earlier that Paul was Christocentric. Every time he uh, introduces himself in a letter, he does so in relation to Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a minister of Christ. I'm an apostle of Christ. One commentator puts it this way, and I love it. Paul was a Christ-intoxicated man. A Christ-intoxicated man. In Colossians chapter 1, we're going to jump straight into verse 25 here. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. That sounds familiar, but has now been made manifested to his saints, verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And here it is, the big reveal. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hallelujah. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I have that passage written on the wall in my office here at the church. And right under it, it says, what else is there? What else is there? The indwelling Christ. Isaiah referred to the Son of God as Emmanuel, God with us. 
Isaiah didn't even know because God had not revealed yet the extent to which God was going to be with us. A lot of us have read that Footsteps in the Sand poem about how like sometimes you only see that one set of footprints along the beach, but Jesus, why would you leave me during those most trying times? And he says, because I was carrying you. I was actually there the whole time. It goes deeper than that. God doesn't just carry you. Friends, he is inside of you. You take him with you wherever you go. Every time you enter into a room, you are entering into God's presence because he isn't just with you, he is inside of you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm going to say something, and it's going to sound heretical at first, but by the time I'm over, I promise it isn't. Christ did not come to forgive your sins. That was not the purpose of his coming. Christ came, the, the end, the, the point was oneness with him, was unity. I am the way, the truth, and the life. None may come to heaven except through me. No, that is what it means, but what he says is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. None may come to the Father except through me. Christ is about relationship. He came for unity, and in order for Christ to live inside of you, he had to forgive you first. He didn't come to forgive you. Forgiveness was a means to an end. He came to live inside of you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not forgiveness of sins, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Forgiveness was a means to an end. As we read through our, our text, we're confronted by a man whose life was radically altered by the coming of Christ. Our first point a life without a subject doesn't make sense. Our second point, the subject is Christ. The subject is Christ. What else is there? We could talk about the indwelling Christ all day. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That song is supposed to evoke in us these emotions that the Israelites were feeling, waiting for a savior yearning for God, yearning for, for someone to come and rescue them from bondage. And they got so much more than they asked for. They got so much more than they were hoping for. I love this hymn. I love this hymn because I love Christ. I've been in ministry for 11 years now, and I'm, I'm just now learning how to be a Christ-intoxicated man. But that's not the end of our, our text. There is one last uh, passage. We're not going to read it just yet. Don't put it up on the screen. You'll, you'll spoil everything. Of course, it's in your notes, so you can always read ahead. But we're in church, and you guys wouldn't jump ahead of the pastor, I'm sure. <laughs> Paul encountered Christ in Acts chapter 9. Paul was gleefully persecuting his church Paul was uh, anxiously awaiting a savior he didn't realize had already come and died and resurrected. And sometimes I, I wonder, you know, how, how people nowadays don't get it. Like, don't get something when I'm trying to share something about the Bible and it's just not clicking for them. And then I remember that, well, 
A guy who wrote like two-thirds of our New Testament probably cheered when Christ was killed. And yet in Acts chapter 9, if you ever want to doubt the amazing power to change things that, that happens when Christ comes down, Acts chapter 9, from Saul to Paul. And, and when he was on that road, you know, we have the benefit of being able to read it in the text, but, you know, Saul, he didn't get blinded and go, oh, Acts chapter 9, yay! You know, he was terrified. He was fearful. He was frightened. Saul, why do you persecute my people? I'm just going to give you point number three before I go on another tangent here. Uh, so point number one, a life without a subject doesn't make any sense. Point number two, the subject is Christ. Point number three, when Christ shows up, everything changes. That is how, after Acts chapter 9, we go from someone who persecuted Christ's church gleefully, who bragged about it, who said he was the best at it, and he traded all of that in. And what did he trade it for? He traded it for Christ. And that's how we go from someone who gleefully persecutes the church to someone who writes Galatians 2.20. For I was crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. My favorite verse in the Bible. When Christ shows up, everything changes. When I read the things that Paul writes, when I read the, the, the text of the New Testament, I am continually brought back to that moment where Christ came in and his life was never the same. I'm going to read you a quote Roland Allen was a missionary in the, the mid-1900s, and he had this to say about Paul. I want to put into perspective for you what I mean when I say that he was a Christ-intoxicated man. In a little more than 10 years, Paul established the church in four provinces in the Roman Empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Four provinces, one of which was Asia. That's kind of big. Okay. <laughs> Before AD 47, there were no churches in those provinces. By AD 57, Paul could speak as if his work there were finished. In 10 years, they went from having no churches in these four huge provinces to Paul being, Paul being able to look back and say, yep, we're done here. 10 years, one guy by himself but really, we know he wasn't by himself, was he? Christ was in him. And in John 15, if you've been watching our uh, uh, PC social things, this past Monday I went live and I talked about balancing Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, with John 15, where Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Paul didn't do this in his own power. Paul didn't accomplish planting the churches in these four massive provinces because he's a really good apostle. He accomplished it because Christ in him accomplished it. Are you a Christ-intoxicated man? A Christ-intoxicated woman? Could someone write that about us long after we die? Is someone going to look at my life and say everything about John's ministry, his heartbeat was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? I hope so. I hope so. But it's not me. It's not me. It's not you. The hymn reminds us it is Emmanuel. It is God with us. So this morning, if I could have you remember anything in particular. Bruce, would you come up? I would have you remember this. Forget the points that I put in the bulletin. Forget the notes. Forget all of those little things that we do. Also, when someone tells me to write something down in church, sometimes I get kind of obstinate, and I'm like, I don't want to write it down. I don't know if anyone else does that. <laughs> little view into my, my mind there. But if I would have you write anything down, if I would have you circle anything in the Bible, if I would have you pay attention to anything that I say this morning at all, there's just one thing that I want you to know. Christ loves you. He lives inside of you. And through him, and only through him, what pastor said this morning is 100% accurate. You can do all things. Because Christ inside you, the hope of glory, is powerful. Christ doesn't need us. He wants us. He loves us. He is, he is here for you this morning. If you would, as you're, you're sitting there, just I want you to think about this year. Think about 2020. Think about what you've experienced. Think about the things that you've seen, the articles that you've read, the headlines in the news. Think about how your family has dealt with the last 12 months. And then I want you to think about what you've seen God do. I want you to think about those Acts 9 moments that have happened for you this year. How has Christ shown up? Because I guarantee you, he has every single day. How do I know that? Because he never leaves you. He is inside of you. Advent is all about expectancy. Christ has already come. He's already died. He's already resurrected. He sits at the right hand of the Father. We know this. So now when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, instead of being transported back to the expectancy that the Israelites were feeling. Sometimes we think about the second coming of Christ and we look with expectancy towards that. And that's awesome. And friends, do that. But at the same time, remember, even as we expectantly look towards the second coming of Christ, we can't miss the indwelling Christ. He is inside of you. And probably every time you hear me preach, you're going to hear me bring it right back to that. 
Spurgeon once wrote that anytime you preach, like, get in the text and make a beeline to Jesus. You see, the Old Testament is just revealing who God is piece by piece by piece. I like to call it, like, progressive revelation. It's a really fancy way of just saying we learn more and more the more you read. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. It's the first thing we learn about God as he was there in the beginning. In the beginning, God created. Lesson number two, he's a creator. The rest of the Old Testament, more and more and more until, boom, Matthew. And we get Christ, the mystery. And we have the ultimate revelation of who God is. So this morning, as uh, I come to a close, remember that, the indwelling Christ, because we were crucified with him, and we no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in us, and the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loves each and every one of you. I was in high school, I was a senior, when I finally realized that. Don't know why, but I was walking down the stairs into my basement when it hit me, literally halfway down the stairs, and I realized God loved me. Up until that point, God loved everyone. John three sixteen: for Christ so loved the world. I was a senior in high school when I was walking down the stairs and it just hit me like a ton of bricks and I started bawling as I realized, yes, God loves everybody, but God loves me. I hope you see that. I hope you know that. Yes, God loves everyone, but God loves you so much. So much that he sent his son to come live inside of you. The goal was always unity with Christ. God with us means God in us, the indwelling Christ. Would you uh, stand for, for a benediction? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before the throne of God. Be all majesty and power and glory and dominion forever. Christ loves you. He is inside of you. Amen. Christ comes in, he changes everything. I happened to be a, a senior in high school too. Went to a church camp called Revival 1979 with Denny Duran. I was a failing high school student with a 1.8 GPA. Missed over 100 days of senior year surfing 
Didn't know what in the world I was going to do with my life. I wanted to make a lot of money. And, and in an instant, I was at the altar. Didn't know why I was there. Half the people praying for me were saying, let go, Scott. The other half were saying, hang on. I didn't know whether to hang on or let go. <laughs> and I got up from that altar like John did in his basement. And I was forever changed. Four days later, I preached my first sermon to 300 junior high kids. And ever since, I have trusted in the power of Christ in us. And the same power that's in me is in John and it's in you. Emmanuel, God with us and in us. Go share them this week. Step into a room and know that God is with you. Step into a situation and know that God is behind you. Step into a, a, a conversation and know that God is with you because he's with you. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore said. Amen, amen. God bless you, church. We'll see you next week. Go and send them more. God bless you.